Our second lesson for the day is our gospel lesson taken from the Gospel of John chapter 3. And I'll begin reading at verse 14. The text this morning perhaps contains the most familiar verse from the New Testament for most of the Christians throughout the world. But maybe you'll notice the context of the text this morning. John chapter 3. I'll begin reading at verse 14. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Great God, we pray that right now here in this place, you will overwhelm each one of us with a sense of the great, great gift that you have offered to us in Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that by the work of your Holy Spirit in this place, that hard, stony hearts will be melted, and that you will replace those hard, stony hearts with hearts of flesh that are filled with love for Jesus Christ. God, we know that you have collected us together in this place this morning and that you have a word for each one of us, so we pray that you will give each one of us ears to hear what you're saying to us today. In the saving name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. To quote Indiana Jones from the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? I can tell that many of you remember that scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark is at least in my top 10 of favorite movies. That movie came out in 1981. It's hard to believe the movie is that old now. It is a wonderful story where Harrison Ford is portraying the archaeologist, Indiana Jones, who is searching for the lost Ark of the Covenant that contains the original tablets of the Ten Commandments. And as he's searching for the lost Ark of the Covenant, he finds himself at the well of souls in the movie. And he knows where he must go. He looks down into the well of souls and there he sees them. And I've done the research. 7,000 snakes is what he sees there in that pit. And that's when he says snakes. Why'd it have to be snakes? 
because you learned that Indiana Jones had a great, great hatred of snakes. And I want to go ahead and offer apologies to the snake lovers, to the herpetologists in the room today. I know that we have some church members that uh, have pet snakes. Uh, I just don't understand that. I, I'll admit to you that I have a Genesis 3 hatred of snakes. God and I both have cursed snakes. And I really don't understand some people's love of snakes. I, I remember in the very first place where Tammy and I lived after we married, it was a small apartment. And uh, when you walked out of the door of that apartment, of course, the light switch was at the door so that you could turn it on when you came in. But as you were walking out that door, you had to walk down a dark hall to get to the door. And that's where the light switch was. And this was many years ago. We were very, very young, and it was the summer. Tammy was barefooted. We were walking out the door, and I didn't turn the light on because I'm opening the door. And just as I cracked the door and the light came in, my wife Tammy felt something around her feet. And she looked down, and it looked to me like the biggest snake I'd ever seen in my life. And she was stepping on that snake, and um, to put it mildly, she got excited <laughs> when she stepped on that snake. I don't even remember her leaving the room, but before I know it, she was backhanding me a hoe, telling me to kill it, kill it. And I did. I confess to you, I killed that snake. And then it circulated through my congregation that this young preacher killed a black snake. And I heard all the stories about how important and valuable black snakes are to us, so please don't write me emails. I know, I know how important black snakes are to us, but if there's a snake in my house, I don't care if it's pink, purple, or black, chances are strong, I, I, I will kill that snake. I have one of those Genesis 3 hatreds of snakes. One more story about snakes. I'm sure you all have your stories stories about snakes just in the last year. I, I greatly startled Jaxie. You know Jaxie, the wonder dog? I greatly startled Jaxie. I was going downstairs to my study. I have the whole downstairs basement at the parsonage. The best study I've ever had. I love my study. I'm going downstairs to, um, to my study early in the morning and Jaxie at that point in his life would usually lead the way into my study. He doesn't do it anymore. I'm going down the steps. As I'm going down the steps, I look over near my treadmill, and there was a snake. It, it, it looked to be huge, and it probably was all of six inches, but it looked to be huge. And the only thing I could think of was that snake could get loose, and who, who knows? It's a big study I have at the Parsonage with probably 2,000-plus books and shelves and who knows where that snake would end up. So um, I was determined that snake was not going to get loose. So my, my poor dog watched me as I held that snake down with one thing I could get my hands on, and it was, a, it was one of his treats. I held the snake down with one of Jaxie's treats, and, I, and I'm sorry if this offends you, but I beat that snake to death with a biography of George Washington. <laughs> that was all I could get my hands on. 
But I, I wanted to make sure that snake didn't get loose in my study downstairs. And I know we've got snake lovers in the church. I know that there's herpetologists in the church. So my apologies, but I have, I think, a scriptural hatred of snakes. Genesis 3. The text before us today is a text that talks about snakes. And you probably never noticed that John 3.16, that famous text is in the midst of a context talking about snakes. Let me make sure you understand the context before we talk about the text. John chapter 3 is a remarkable, remarkable part of the New Testament. A large number of sermons were preached on John chapter 3 by John Wesley because in John chapter 3, you, you learn about the new birth. And John Wesley loved to preach about the new birth. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus, a religious man, a Pharisee, a good man, came to Jesus to talk to Jesus about the things of God. He came to Jesus at night because that was the time when we had, then they had time to talk about such matters at Lent. So Nicodemus came to Jesus and Jesus told that religious man, that good man, that he must be born again. The Greek word is anothen. It means born again, born anew, or born from above. But Jesus told Nicodemus, the good man Nicodemus, the religious man Nicodemus, that he must be born again. And it was the Methodist people almost who reintroduced the importance, the, the significance of the theology of the new birth to the body of Christ in the 18th century there in England. John Wesley loved to preach on the new birth and his favorite text was this section in the early part of John chapter 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a good man, a religious man, and he heard this language about being born again, born from above, born anew. And he said to Jesus, how can this be? One of the characteristics of John's gospel is that the crowds around Jesus, the people around Jesus, rarely understand what Jesus is saying. So Nicodemus says, how can this be? You know, can I re-enter my mother's womb and be born again? So when Nicodemus said, how can this be? That's when Jesus decided it was time to tell the story about snakes, a story that Nicodemus would have known well from the Old Testament. And he takes Nicodemus back to what we would call Numbers chapter 21. And you heard the text a few moments ago. In Numbers chapter 21, the children of Israel have been freed from bondage in Egypt and they're making their journey through the desert, through the wilderness. It's a journey that will last almost 40 years. And God has been providing for them while they were making their journey. God was leading them, a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day. God was providing them with quail to eat and manna and water from the rock. But human nature being what human nature is, they begin to grumble, they begin to murmur, they begin to complain. And the text in Exodus and Numbers tell us that they murmured and complained and grumbled 
against Moses and against God. God was providing, but God wasn't quiet providing the way they wanted God to provide. So they grumbled, they murmured, they complained. You know, human nature being what it is, we have to watch our propensity to grumble or murmur or complain. And I'm one of the best at it, by the way. I can look at just about anything and tell you how it could be done better, why it should be done differently, why it doesn't quite suit me. But over the last 30 plus years, as the Spirit's been working on me, the Spirit has tried to free me of some of that spirit of complaining and murmuring and grumbling. I remember the story in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce about one particular woman who just, that was her lifestyle. She grumbled all the time. And in that fantasy, C.S. Lewis says that she grumbled so much that she ceased being a grumbler and just became a grumble. That's all she was. That's what she became. She just became a grumble. So we need to be careful about grumbling, complaining, murmuring. That's what the children of Israel were doing to Moses and hence to God. So God allowed a plague of snakes, almost in Indiana Jones fashion, to come upon the people. And these were poisonous snakes, and the text tells us that many, many of them died because they were bitten by these poisonous snakes. So God then told Moses to take a pole and to fashion a bronze serpent and put on that pole. And then when the people would look at that bronze serpent, as they looked at that bronze serpent, they would be healed of their snake bite and they would be saved. So that's the context. That's why it says, verse 14, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And of course, this is a prophecy that he will die on a Roman cross. Jews didn't crucify, but Romans crucified And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have, may have eternal life. And then there's our verse, 316, for God so loved the world, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that everyone who believes in Him may not perish but have eternal life. A.W. Tozer is another one of the heroes of the Christian faith, and his book, The Pursuit of God, is one of those books that's in my top ten list that I, I try to read annually. And in Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God, he talks about the story of the, the bronze serpent being lifted up in the wilderness, and he relates it to Jesus. And this is what A.W. Tozer says about that story. Looking on the Old Testament serpent is identical with believing on the New Testament Christ. That is, the looking and the believing are the same thing. And then A.W. Tozer defines faith this way. Faith is the gaze of the soul 
upon a saving God. So we're called to gaze, to look, to look intensely, not just to glance on this one who can save us. We gaze, we believe, we trust, we put our confidence in this one who can save us. Again, I learned last night that when I have a text like this from which I may preach on Sunday mornings, it's very hard for me to sleep. I get so excited when I have a text like this. You know, there are a lot of texts in the Bible that we have to work with and, and then we go and preach our sermon from that text. But there are some texts in the Bible, such as John 3.16, that simply preach themselves. And the main thing we preachers need to do with a text like this is just get out of the way. John 3.16, written obviously originally in Greek, the greatest 25 words ever written. 25 words in the Greek language. When we, when we translate it into the English language, it becomes something like this. For God, notice it starts with God, not with us. For God so loved the world, not just some of the world, but the whole world. For God so loved the world in such a way that he gave his only son. The word only there means one and only, only begotten, unique son. We're children of God, but this son is a very unique one and only begotten son of God. So this God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone, everyone who believes in him, believes in him, trusts him, gazes intensely upon him, refuses to take their eyes off of him, may not perish, but may have eternal life, and it really is eternal life, not everlasting life. In John's gospel, the, the phrase eternal life is a, almost a technical term for John's gospel. Eternal life is a quality of life. We probably could translate it heavenly life. It's a quality of life that God gives us through the power of the Spirit. It's not just a life for the future. It's a life that begins in the here and now when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and the Spirit is birthed in us and we are born anew. We get that quality of life, that heavenly life. It becomes central to us. And that heavenly life, of course, cannot be stopped or squelched when our bodies cease functioning. So that heavenly life, that eternal life that's given to us in Jesus Christ certainly is everlasting. It will go on and on and on. And the opposite of having the gift of this heavenly life is perishing according to the gospel text. You have the gift of this life from Jesus or the option is to perish. You notice here in the text, it's really very, very clear that everyone doesn't automatically benefit 
from the work of Christ in regards to eternal life. The whole world benefits from the fact that we as believers are here in the world, but people benefit from eternal life only when they make the choice to receive that gift. Here in John 3, the, the choice is made clear. Choices are so important. We make choices all day long, but all choices are not created equal. All of those choices, all the choices we'll make, we make will add up to become our life. But some of those choices are more, more important and significant than other choices. And our choice to receive Jesus Christ, our choice to enthrone Jesus Christ at the center of our lives, our choice to, to gaze upon, to look intently, refusing to take our eyes off the one that we trust, that choice to believe in, believe on Jesus Christ is what gives us this gift of new life. And you see the other option here. I believe, I believe that hell is locked from the inside. And what we mean when we say that is this, I believe that everyone in hell wants to be there. That's how I can say I believe hell is locked from the inside. The people there have chosen to be there. God so loves us. God so esteems us. God so empowers our choices. God will let us choose Him or not. And if we choose a relationship with God in this life, it should make perfect sense to us that that relationship will continue in the life to come. But if we choose to not have a relationship with God in this life, it makes perfect sense that it will not continue in the world to come. I believe that hell is locked from the inside. I believe everyone there has chosen it and they want it. For the people who choose hell in this world, who choose to not be in relationship with our loving God, for them, if somehow, some way they were in heaven, it would be hellish for them. Because they don't want anything to do with God at the center of their life. They are very satisfied themselves being at the center of their life. They don't want anything to do with the love that God has to offer. They have a different paradigm for life. But the choice is placed clearly before us. I, I, I hope that I can ask each one of you about your relationship to Christ. You can tell me about your relationship to Christ. I hope that I can even ask each one of you about your personal mission statement. I think it's really important that each one of us have our personal mission statement. That we, we create a mission statement that we can boil down to one sentence where we can say to ourselves why it is we get out of bed every morning, why we do what we do, why we live the life that we live, why we exert the energy that we exert, why we manage our time the way we manage our time. What is your personal mission statement? I have a personal mission statement and in my morning prayer every day I reaffirm, I, I renew, I reclaim my personal mission statement. My personal mission statement is I want to help people know Jesus Christ and walk in the fullness of His Spirit. 
That's what I want out of life. That, that determines everything else. I, I do a lot of different things in life, but that mission statement organizes all of life for me. What is it that organizes all of life for you? In 1904, 1905, there was a great, great move of God that hit the nation of Wales. The Welch revival lasted from 1904 up into 1906. And uh, even today, people in Wales will talk about the power of the Welch revival at the beginning of the 20th century. God did a marvelous move there in Wales, and it so changed people that it changed society there in Wales. And we have historical records that because of that renewal movement, because of that revival, they were even able to lay off police officers in many of the cities in Wales because they, they weren't needed as desperately any longer. People were different. It was predominantly a revival led by lay people. Lay people just sharing their faith in Christ with each other. Lay people who weren't afraid to tell their testimony to other people. And we Methodists, by the way, in our early history, we made sure we did that kind of thing every week in the class meeting. We shared our walk of faith. We shared our testimony with people around us. The Welch Revival was something that God did, and it was basically lay people being smitten with a spirit of prayer and sharing their faith with each other. The preacher, and I put that word in quotation marks, that was God's instrument in the Welsh Revival was Evan Roberts. He was a 26-year-old college dropout. But in some ways, the Welch Revival began with him as, as he started praying, bend me, God, bend me. We might say mold me or make me or break me even to do whatever it is you need to do in my life. And the Welch Revival changed the heart of a nation there in Wales in 1904, 1905, 1906. And there was one particular hymn that we now call the love song of the Welch Revival. It was a simple hymn. It had been around for many years. And I'm thrilled that it has been resurrected and recaptured and brought out of the Christian closet in the last 20 years. And we're beginning to use it again. But the love song of the Welch Revival is a hymn entitled, Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean. And God used that hymn, they'd been around for years, to melt people's hearts. It began when Annie Davies, a young Welch peasant girl, stood up in one of the meetings and she started the singing. And it's almost a haunting hymn. She started the singing of Here is love vast as the ocean. And it became the love song of the Welch revival because God used that song to melt a lot of hearts and to pave the way for people to receive the Lordship of Jesus Christ. My prayer for you, our prayer for each other during the Lenten season is that we all return to our first love 
we all fall in love with Jesus Christ all over again.